everybody. Hey, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And we're going to discuss an interesting topic on this. What would perfect look like in our education system? We have, uh, you guys have probably been reading and see how far uh, American children have fallen behind reading, writing, arithmetic. There's entire high schools where the graduating class, they can't pass uh, a basic proficiency test for English. Uh, there's a, you know, we've been chartered to raise our, our kids, raise a generation, equip them to go in the world. And we want to talk about actually how to do that. What are some ways, some things that we can do? And so I wanted to bring on Lyle Lee Jenkins. Uh, so Lee, this has been a passion in the field of yours, education that you have been in for a very long time. So share with us a little bit about kind of your background and your journey that got you here to just focus on this place of, hey, how do we bring back joy in education? How do you create what you call a perfect educational environment that just allows our kids to flourish? Okay, well, uh, I've uh, had all the positions that people would think of in education, but that's not why I'm here today. The reason I'm here is because the people who freely gave of their time and their wisdom to me over the years, and there are so many, and so I, that's what I share. It's a, it's a collection from all of these different people. And I've landed on what would perfect education be. Uh, there's a book, How to Create a Perfect School, how to create a perfect homeschool. So it sounds like a crazy title because the school won't be perfect, whether it's at home or in a classroom, it won't be perfect. So why use the word perfect? The reason is in all endeavors of life, if we know what perfect is, we can get closer. And if we don't know what perfect is, then we're, we're randomly grabbing at ideas to try to make it better. If you look at all the laws passed in education, the legislatures have no knowledge of what perfect would be, so they just pass random laws, whatever's in vogue at the moment. But so what would perfect be? Perfect is that the love of learning that God gave children at birth and they still have with them at kindergarten is maintained for 12 more years. That's it. And so teachers are given bad advice. Their advice is to motivate kids to learn. It's not, it's, that's terrible advice. Why is that terrible advice? Because I would think that motivating my kids to want to learn, that desire to learn, would be part of that. Well, it's to maintain the love of learning that they were born with. It's to maintain it. And if you've lost it, restore it. So a friend of mine teaching grade eight science, every year, the first year day of the school year, the five periods of science, some kids come every period and they say, I hate science. And he says to them, oh, that's interesting. When did you decide to hate science? And they say, I always hated science. He says, no, actually, that's not true. It's not true. You loved everything in kindergarten. Tell me what happened to you. And they tell their story. So then he says, because here's the deal. I'm not going to motivate you to learn science this year, but I'm going to work with you to put you back the way you used to be in kindergarten. We're going to restore you, put you back. See, when kids are motivated in our culture, that often means bribery. I mean, kind of the carrot and the stick approach. It is, absolutely. <laughs> so speaking to school administrators in Arizona a week ago, I asked them, just with a couple of people around you at your table, how many bribes do kids receive per day in your school system? And we don't use the word bribe, we use incentive. 
It's a polite word. Yeah. Okay. Interesting so, question. And then said, yeah, take that number and multiply it by 180 for 180 school days, and then multiply that by 13 years of school. It goes from 5,000 bribes to up to 20,000 bribes the kids are receiving in the, in the school systems. And so that's what we think is motivation. We're going to bribe them. It's not working. But what if we said, wow, you were created perfectly. You had that love of learning when you were five. Let's put you back the way you used to be. We're going to figure out how to do that. Well, yeah. And so when you're talking about perfect, though, right, this joy, this love of learning when kids have when they're they're small, before we kind of talk about how to restore it, you know, when they're younger, for maybe some of the us that have those younger kids, mm -hmm. how do we help them when they still actually have that, uh, stay connected to that as parents? How do we even work with our kids' teachers to maybe uh, in, reinforce some of this? Okay, well, we have to look at what it is that's built into the system that's destroying that love of learning. It's because the teachers don't, on purpose, say, okay, who can I discourage today? The parents in homeschool don't say, who, I've got three children, I'm gonna discourage one of them today. No, they don't do that. There's things built in that cause it, okay? And so we have to look at what it is. Bribery is one of them. Another one is in the United States, all the kids know you don't have to learn anything in our schools. You don't have to learn anything. They know that. It starts in first grade. It actually goes all the way through to medical school. You don't have to learn anything. All you have to do is know it for the Friday test. If you well, don't you know, for Friday. Point, right? The whole cram and flush because I took four years of high school Spanish and I crammed right. so I could pass each week's quiz. I crammed so that I could pass each test. And I never was at a point where I was conversational, even though I passed Spanish one, two, three, and four. And it was just a chore. I actually never learned the language, so to speak. Right, right. That's the norm in America. So then I asked, who has the most power over education in America? And they have the same power over public and private schools, and they have the same power over universities. It's the person that created those weekly tests, that idea. So one of the main things I do is help set up schools so it's impossible to cram. You have to learn. We make it impossible. What does that look like, Lee? That's curious. You know, apply it to Spanish. Let's just say my... I'm freshman in, in high school and I'm starting Spanish. What would that look like differently maybe? Okay. One of the things that your Spanish teacher wanted you to learn was vocabulary. Correct. The teacher would give you, say, uh, Spanish teachers I've worked with would say, well, here's your 400 vocabulary words for the whole year. Here they are. First week of school, here they are. And then when it's time for the weekly test, you get tested on, they're not, and they're not graded by the way, what I'm telling you now is not graded but you're tested on 20 of those 400 at random. Well, you might get one right, might get two, might get zero. And every week or almost every week, 20 out of the 400 is quizzed on random. And then the teacher's teaching, not randomly, but logically. And so your score goes up and up and up. You're not trying to get 100% on the, on the weekly quiz. You're trying to do better than you've ever done before. So all time best is the word that resonates throughout the school. We're trying to do better than we've done before. And by the end of the year, the, so the idea is improvement versus a uh, homework grade, correct? That's right. Right. It's just, yeah. am I getting better than I've ever than ever before? But there are grades in schools. So 
when there's a grade at nine weeks, the teacher gives you an exam. If you get a quarter of them right, you got an A because you know a quarter of the words for the year. Then a semester, you get an exam on the end of the year, expectation, and if you know half of them, you've got your A. So it's a progress towards what you're supposed to know at the end of the year. It's not cram, forget, cram, forget, cram, forget. And that works in all subjects, all grade levels, and kids love it. It's in homeschool. And when I'm working with a homeschool family, the boy was in first grade when we first started working. Mom said to his first grade son, what do you, tell Lee what you think of reading. He said, I hate it. Well, it crushed mom. How, why do you hate it? Well, he described the program for memorizing his sight words. And he was always getting nine out of 10 right. And it just discouraged him so much. So we changed it. We put all the sight words for the year in a bucket, pulled out 10 each week and said, find the words you can read and read them to me. And the graph went up and up and up and up and up. So that's a part of it is thinking, okay, we use data for harm. How do we use data for joy? How do we take away bribery and how do we take away cramming? You know, that's a good point. You know, I never thought of it that way. Data, well, you're not using data for harm intentionally. I remember I went to a, an all boys Catholic military high school. And in every class, yes. uh, whenever we took a test, the test grades would be posted outside the door. So when you're walking around the hall, you're seeing everybody's grades. And there's always a few guys that were really smart. I wanted to do really yes. well because I wanted to go to the Naval Academy or get a ROTC scholarship. But there was a few of the classes, some of the math and science ones, where I could not crack that top 10 guys. I mean, I studied and then yeah. I scored, they were above me. And, and I'm like, well, I guess I'm not smart enough. I don't know. I, I've, I've never thought of it this way, but I think um, I started accepting the fact that, you know what, maybe I'm just a B plus kind of guy in some of these courses or a B. Uh -huh. I actually got a B in some of these and I kept trying hard, but it was a little, I think at the time, every, well, let me ask you a question. Just in that context, can that be motivating or is there a better way to create almost that uh, instead of competing against others, how do I, how do I, we as parents and teachers help each student basically compete against the best version of themselves as a student, if that makes sense? Oh, in the classroom, and then we'll talk about parents, but in the classroom, you're competing against yourself. And then there's one other part of this. And every athletic coach knows this. There's a scoreboard in athletics. And what is the scoreboard? It's addition. You add up the total from every player on the team and you post it. So in the classrooms, we do the same thing. We add the total up. So the kids see that the only thing that goes on the wall is not something that compares kid to kid. What goes on the wall is what all of us did together. So the kids know how they're doing it compared against themselves in their own personal data folder. But on the wall, the class knows they're getting better and better and better. And the kids that are struggling, when the class only does barely better than they've ever done before, they know I'm the one that did it. I put us over the top. Just like a poor athlete on a basketball team who makes one point and the team wins by one, they know they did it. It's the same thing. Right. And in society, we know everything I'm telling you, we know for athletics and we don't apply it to the classroom. The and thing about those classrooms where these, you know, the kids have come out of, right, they hate 
math and reading and right they, they've kind of they've just gotten a little discouraged the joy is gone maybe they're in you know seventh eighth ninth tenth grade now at this point there's some things that have been ingrained right they actually truly believe that either they're not good at these subjects or they they're not wired at them how do we start to shift that okay uh, earlier this month i was in uh in rhode island working in a charter school and eighth grade english in an extremely impoverished environment uh, the school was 90 percent or more minority eighth grade english the kids have experienced all the things you talked about unbelievable learning i just did uh, the effect size calculation they had eight times the average learning of a typical classroom because they all could see their growth and they knew the growth of the whole class. And when I, I walked in unannounced with a new administrator in the school and they, and I walked out, five kids gathered around to want my autograph. Why? Because they knew I was the one that brought learning joy to their classroom. They knew that. That's awesome. How, how did you do that? Share with us the story of what that looked like. Well, I've been in the school for four years and the mm -hmm. process that I described to us, okay, teachers, first of all, you have to write down what you want the kids to know at the end of the year. No trivia on the list. Take the trivia out. Kids hate mem trying to memorize trivia, which is what's on chapter tests. Uh, no, write down what's essential. Give it to them. Then uh, almost every week of the year, you're going to give them a non-graded quiz on it, and it's going to be a random, a random from the whole list. It's at random, and they're going to graph the results. It's not that complicated. And we're going to add it up for the whole class. Yeah, and what happens, because when you do it at random, then you're asking kids questions on things you haven't taught yet. Yeah, and but you're not grading it, but they get the questions. And so that causes them to pressure the teacher to teach more instead of the teacher pressuring the kids to learn more because this has come up and they want to know. Can that be discouraging though? In the beginning, it's discouraging. <clears throat> yeah, it takes them, uh, no matter the age, it will take them three, four uh, quiz around, you know, rounds of quizzes, weeks or so, to catch on. They have to, in the beginning, of course, it's discouraging. And, and the first time you go through it, it's discouraging. It doesn't matter if you're in first grade or 10th grade. But once you see, oh, I got an all-time best, yay, yay for me. And then you have the total up for the class. And the teacher's thrilled, and we're thrilled. And we give ourselves a big hand because we did, as a team, we did better than ever before. And they get the idea. But you can't explain it in the abstract to them. They have to experience it. As you've done this in classrooms, Lee, what's the before and the after? What? How do you measure that? Is it test scores, reading proficiency? I, I, I'm fascinated to hear what what you found. Okay. John Hattie is one of the best known educators in the world. He lives in Melbourne, Australia. He has studied 250 influences on learning. And he knows which influence are average, which ones are worse than average, which ones give us double, triple, and one gives us quadruple the learning. And if the form, the statistical tool is effect size, EFF, -F -F ECT, effect size. 
So the first time I met John, what does effect size mean? Well, it just tells you a way to comparison the effect of different influences upon learning. Okay. And effect size can be pre and post data, or it can be comparing one thing against another thing. So, give an example. He um, he said, "What's the effect size of tangible rewards?" Well, tangible rewards makes make is the effect size is negative. It makes it it goes backwards. Okay? Really? Yeah. It goes so backwards. incentives that we think of, like do this and you'll get this, you'll get some time off or whatever. Yeah, it makes it go backwards. Be. Yeah. Huh. Because they don't care about the learning anymore; they just care about the reward. Yeah, it makes it go backwards. The one that is the most is collective efficacy. It's all of us working together to accomplish something that gives us four times the learning. So anyway, he told me that the data I was collecting on these quizzes, we have everything we need to calculate effect size and compare it to his 250 influences. So I get an average of six times the learning from this. And when I say to teachers, why? Did you do so well? And that's from 300 classrooms. Why? Tell me what happened. Why do you think this happened in your classroom? And you made the point, John. The teachers say the kids actually remember in May what I taught them in September. So to hear you, if I'm hearing you right, right, what you're doing is you're creating this collective group. Uh, you're starting to get people from trying to get a, a reward, right? So then the the only reason I'm putting in the effort is to get that thing versus learn the material. And now we're shifting it to, I wanna learn this and actually be part of what's happening in my class. And I'm just trying to picture, and it's 6X, which is huge. So let's take this and apply it toward an area that I know we are struggling with and the, especially the public school system. And that is, reading comprehension and um, just reading in general. Talk to me about what that looks like okay. applied in, in that context. If you take reading, which I an area that I've done a lot of work in, and this goes not so much to the measurement, but it connects. But just talk about teaching kids to read to start with. We have three approaches to reading is all we've got in the United States. We can start with sounds, we can start with words, or we can start with sentences. A uh, hundred years ago, we started teaching kids to learn to read with sentences, and that was McGuffey Readers. Then we changed to Dick and Jane, and that was starting with words. Every, this, the author wrote the Dick and Jane story with six words, then the next story got eight words, the next story got 10 words, and just kept adding two words per story. Okay. Then we changed to sound, and we call that phonics. So what I would say is there's three approaches. None of them are 100% effective. So if you want all the kids to learn to read, you need to know all three so that you can meet the needs of the kids. It's not happening. Whatever's in vogue at the moment, everybody's forced to use that method, and it is guaranteed that some kids will fail. Uh, because none of the three are 100%. We've taken the joy out of learning to read. When you just look at the phonics, there are people who get a master's degree in phonics and want six-year-olds to know it. Now, do kids need to know some phonics? Of course. They don't need a master's degree in phonics. 
And one of the favorite things I've learned from a, a credible teacher is she would ask kids, there were a number of things she did in the room, but one was she'd say to kids, what word do you want to learn to read today? And it was individual for individual kids. And over the year, the typical kid had 60 to 80 words over the course of a year. What word do you want to learn to read today? Well, all the phonics you'd ever want to teach kids is built into the words they asked for. You don't have to go through some boring program. You can learn it right that, that way. And her idea spread to five other classrooms. So I got the words from uh, six first grade classrooms. There's 180 children, 60 to 80 words per kid. And I classified them. So what do the kids want to read about? Science. Science is their number one interest. It's almost half of the words. No kidding. It's four times more than fantasy. And they're thrilled with it. That's their words. And they, they had activities to do with their word. They had to draw a picture of it. They, they wrote a sentence or dictated a sentence, depending on their ability. They practiced writing the word on a, on a slate board. You know, they had things to do with it. But they, I'm just saying that we can teach reading with joy. So from John Hattie in Australia, I think these are the three words that people can keep in their mind when this podcast is over. There's skill, will, and thrill. Just remember that, skill, will, and thrill. We all know we want the skill, which we're talking about reading, we want to learn to read. But we have to teach it in a way that we keep the will to work hard alive, and the thrill comes from learning. They have to be thrilled with the learning. If they're not thrilled with the learning, then they lose their will to work hard, and we don't get the skill we want. It's all three, no matter what we're doing. Well, I love that. And in that class, when I'm combining some of these methods, then how do you bring it into the that collective of how the kids are doing? And it, then it becomes almost like how we did in addition to how I did. Well, <clears throat> what it is, is, and that's my work. Uh, it's through writing books, how to create a perfect school, how to create a perfect homeschool. It's through speaking and and it's through podcasts, it's to let people know that what we've learned in athletics, where the kids are trying to beat their personal best time or personal, you know, free throws, you know, it's in every, every sport, they're trying to do their best, and they add up a total for the team. So we already know how to do it. We just have to think, okay, I can take this information from coaching and put it into classrooms. And once I have that mindset, then I can learn from what Lee's written and what he says, and, and I can get some of the details to work it out. But if I just want to know how to do that and the power that comes from personal best for myself in the classroom. And by the way, we put a, a school-wide best in the hallway because we add the total up for every classroom and put it in the hallway. And the schools gets to celebrate us doing this as its best ever. And then, <clears throat> For the goal for the school, what's the goal for the school? Is to have the best year ever. So they know the, the best that the school's ever done in prior years, and they're trying to beat that record. They're trying to beat that record like uh, like the football team or the track team is trying to beat certain records because you always talk about yes. that. Yes, hey, it's the same it's, thing. It's the same thing. You're not talking thing. about SAT and ACT. You're saying, no, this core English course or math or fractions or geometry Here's how ninth graders all all did, and you know we can celebrate 
what we did, like something right in front of us versus some standardized test. Is that fair? Is that what you're talking about? That's, that's fair. That's fair. So I, I would love to hear, Lee, as you've worked with these different classrooms. I, I do a lot of work here in Denver with some incredible groups that work really with a special of our, a number of our failing high schools. We have some high schools in the public system here that um, definitely need to can have much better results. And there's groups that really care about this. Can you share some stories? I, I'd love to hear like even middle school, high school, where, you know, it looked really broken from the outside and you came in and, and, you know, over one, two, three, four years, uh, some, you know, there were some uh, meaningful changes. Well, let's just take the school I was in in Rhode Island recently, because it's fresh on my mind. I sat in the office of the person there who does their data collecting. And we know that without a doubt that the classrooms that have been really, the teachers have embraced what I'm teaching, and it's not 100% embracement. There's a, a couple of the high school that haven't. You can see from results of other outside tests, not what I do, but others, and they measure growth and they measure uh, comparison, like a standardized test, and it works. It absolutely works that they see that. And the kids know. They know whether there's a teacher that is ranking them and there's a, a teacher in the school who, whose pride is how many kids he can flunk. They know that. And then they know the majority of the teachers have bought into what I'm teaching and they know the difference. They see the joy. So that's one. Yep. And what's the feedback from the teachers? I'm, I'm just wondering, do, is this for them, do they, uh, over time, uh, does, does this feel like more work? Does it feel like, no, yes. this makes it easier? Like, what are your thoughts? Okay, it is uh, work in the beginning to set it up. It takes time for teachers to write down what they want kids to know at the end of the year. Now, if you're outside of education, you think they already know that. Yeah, I'd like to think that. <laughs> but they don't because they're going chapter by chapter by chapter. Okay. And when you say, write it down and give it to the kids in plain English and no trivia, only what's essential. Then the work and the school that, again, going back to the recent experience at Rhode Island, they're beginning to connect it from class to class so that when you take this weekly quiz, it's not only what you're teaching that year, there's a few questions from prior years. Now, in the elementary school, in the math, we've done that. So they know that when they take the quiz, there are questions, if you're in fifth grade, you get questions from third grade and fourth grade, as well as fifth grade. So we don't allow them to forget the prior grade levels. It's, it's interesting, the kids know what the system is. So if, go back to Spanish, if, the teacher had a different system and you remember first year Spanish and then the first year. Then you might think, okay, that's over. I don't need that to remember that anymore. Kids in, in uh, geometry class think, well, I don't need to remember Algebra 1 anymore. That's over. Nobody asked me any more questions about Algebra 1, right? I'm done with that. I may have remembered it yesterday, but I don't need to know it now. Well, we make sure that in geometry class, you get a couple Algebra 1 questions every week. That's huge. So connecting teacher to teacher is the next step. That's right. huge. It's huge. 
And I mean, I've worked at a school in, in Nebraska, a school district. Uh, they had four or five elementary schools. We did this just with spelling. It took a whole day to agree on the spelling words for first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth, and fifth grade. It took a whole day because second grade was not allowed to have any words that were on the first grade list. But when they took their quiz in second grade, they couldn't have, when you gave them the list in second grade, when you gave them the list of words for second grade, no words on that list could be from the first grade. They had to be all new words. Okay, new words, but I still would bring in those first grade words, but the new learning, the block of learning has to be new and different and separate. Yes. Got so it. they took the quiz. There's two buckets in the front of the room. There's a bucket of second grade words and a bucket full of first grade words. So now remember, we told you to do it random. So the second grade would probably be 16 words a week on their quiz. So 12 words come out of the second grade bucket and four words come out of the first grade bucket. And then when the quiz is over, you put them all back in the bucket because <clears throat> anything can come up any week. Then you go to third grade. There's three buckets there. And the quiz might be 20 words. So they get 16 words out of the third grade bucket, three words out of the second grade bucket, and one word out of the first grade bucket. So it's a visual. I don't have permission to forget the prior years. I, don't, I can't forget this year, and I can't forget what happened in the past. I like that as a visual. So now, Lee, um, I just want to share with people, if you want to connect with Lee, learn more about him, uh, Lee's website is L as in um, Lee, 2, T-O, and then J as in Jenkins, L2J.net. And you guys connect with Lee. There's uh, some incredible books in here, uh, many that Lee's mentioned. And the great thing is, Lee, because we were talking before I hit record, this is something that we can take in. We can bring it in if we're homeschooling, like our private school, right? I've, I'm, when I'm done with this uh, interview, I'm going to forward it to some you know, teachers I know, administrators that I know, uh, just get a conversation going. Uh, here's a great thing about a podcast like this, folks. You can forward this to your kid's teacher. Say, what do you think? You want to talk to Lee? You want to plug into his resources? Hey, you know what? Uh, you were talking at the reviews that our, you know, the average reading level in our in the class isn't where we want it, and you're and we're doing a whole bunch of good things, and you know, so take a resource like this and forward it to people that you know, and get the conversation going because there's things out there like. You know, we when we raised our kids and homeschooled them, what was all the in vogue uh, league was phonics. That's what we did. That's how we taught our kids to read. But as I think about it, because we, my wife was so good at understanding their learning styles, I think we actually, if I pulled her in here and asked her, I'd be willing to bet we did all three of those things that you were talking about, even though we were kind of focused on phonics. And the kids learned this absolute love for reading. Yes. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this as we kind of wrap up, Lee, just people listening, right? We have we have uh, parents out here and people that are uh, concerned, interested in public education, right? A lot of listeners out here are have their kids in private school or want to move in, into private school because of the quality of the public school. We have a lot of homeschoolers, but we also have people that probably love to homeschool, but, you know, mom and dad both have to work. So what are your just your kind of thoughts in general here as we as we wrap up with so much going on in the whole educational space? Well, first of all, there's the wonky things going on in the public schools right now that is gets the attention. Uh, 
But prior to all of the things that are going on there, the, the discouragement of learning occurred in public and private schools. And I spoke recently to the Arizona Christian School Conference. It's, some, it's the same because that's the system we've inherited. Mm. So think through how do we keep that love of learning alive? And we just, we want to do better. You can, I ask in the Christian School Conference, there were 50 people in this session. How many of them in that room had that love of learning when they were 17 they, that they once had at five? It was four out of the 50. Wow. It is rampant. And that's what you get. Now, the good news is because six to 8% of the people have kept that love of learning all the way through high school. So it's possible. But it's not, we need to think, okay, if we can't keep that alive, something's wrong. And I would say that one of the major ways that people have kept it alive for older kids is giving kids choice. So as a teacher who in West Virginia said, here's what I want you to learn. Here's three ways you can prove to me you've learned it. If you got a better idea, come talk to me. That simple thing right there will keep the love of learning alive for some kids. Now say that again, Lee. What were those three? Okay, the teacher said, here's what I want you to learn, and gave them three choices of how they could learn it. I don't know the choices, but he gave them three, okay? But then he said, the key is, if you don't like those three, come talk to me if you've got another idea how you can prove that you've learned it. And one of the examples he had was a girl in 11th grade US history, did all of her assignments all year long with political cartoons. She proved through the cartoon she understood the history. I shared this. I share that story often. A teacher came to me and said, when I was in high school, all I cared about was theater and drama. If the teacher had said to me, show me how you can prove you've learned it, I would have connected every assignment in every classroom to theater and drama. I could have done it. And I would have loved high school. As it was, I only loved my drama class. So, I mean, that's a simple thing to say, how do we keep the love of learning alive? It's not as complicated as the crafting, but it's giving kids choices, just like what word you want to learn today. Another one is, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many classrooms I've been in where there's the alphabet above the whiteboard, you know, young kids. And I'll say, you know, you've got the a letter A and a word and a B and a word, and you know, that's common. I said, why don't you let the kids choose which words go up there? And what do the teachers say? It's, I can almost tell you what they're going to say. They say, oh, I can't. The school district has bought a reading program, and I have to keep the words up there they, that the company made. Mm. That's crazy. When the kids can put the words up there, when they could choose, they know. And then they can have some ownership. They could say, hey, that's my word. Hey, that was fun. I, you know, I'm involved. Yes, and they know what words their friends chose. No, no, can't do it. We got, like, see, it. We, skill, will, and thrill. Yes, we want the kids to read the words, but if you don't keep the thrill alive and the will arrive, you're not going to get the skill you want. Well, I love that. Skill, will, and thrill. And I don't know if you guys heard that, but you were thinking about the, uh, the rigidity of modern education and how educators, some of them think, and I heard you sigh right there. There's some frustration because you know what? We don't have to do what's always been done or even what they say we should do. 
uh, to get very different results because clearly what we've been doing in a lot of these school systems, the results are not improving. So guys, let's make a difference. Let's have a voice in this. Let's go to our school boards and have a solution, something really positive that doesn't come across critical to the teachers. We're coming, you know what? We can come alongside our teachers. I'm working with a, yes. a program here in Colorado. They did not like the education system. It was failing our kids. We had high schools here that had, you know, I think the African-American graduation rate, this was uh, about 10 years ago, was 53%. And the um, Latino was uh, 61%. It was terrible. And they said, well, what can we do about it? And they said, well, why don't we provide mentors and teachers to come in to some of the classes and start teaching values and start giving the kids some mentorship? And you know what? We're not going to displace the the teacher. We're going to... Uh, we're going to pay for this. It's a group called Colorado Uplift, and now it's grown across the country called Elevate USA. And the results, move just that little bit, a little bit of a focus on something different in a positive way can move the graduation yes. rates in, in some of these classes into the high 90 percentile. And a couple of years ago, everybody in one of these. So there's a lot that we can do. And you know what? And I love what you said. It's not just the public schools because a lot of these teaching systems have been inherited and brought into our Christian schools. And I got to tell you, we had our kids in private school, Christian school. And I got some of those environments I was very frustrated with. They did not have good results. Our kids did not want to go to chemistry. They did yes. not want to go to algebra. And it's because they were teaching it the way, some of the ways you described. And I hope more people are open to making right. some small right. changes because you know what? We're failing our kids in many situations, unfortunately. Well, we are, John. I just want people to have hope. Mm. It can be a whole lot better. And we have to think through. It's, it's not just adding on something. It's replacing. I want us to say, okay, what is it that's causing kids to fail that we inherited? And what can we replace it with? I'm not going to just keep adding, adding, adding on to people. So we're going to take out data that causes harm and replace it with data for joy. We're going to take out cram, forget, and put it in teach and remember, learn and remember. We have to replace, and we can do it. And that'll give hope to teachers, administrators, and to the kids. That was awesome. Well, Lee, thank you. I hope you get a lot of follow-up from our audience as people uh, plug into. Remember, it's L2J, L-T-O-J.net incredible books and resources and uh lee thanks for the work you're doing man it is really needed right now so keep knocking them alive out there my friend thank you 